Hello and welcome to episode 2 of The Crashdown, a Roswell podcast. My name is CJ and let's get started. Today's episode is called Morning After and it picks up right where our first episode left off. There are so many great things that happen in this episode. We get a nickname for everyone who's in on the alien secret. We get a new character. And for those of you who watched Angel, it's Darla. I don't know how many fans are out there. I think there's probably a lot of crossover. If you like supernatural, you tend to like sci-fi, you know, fantasy and whatnot. It crosses over a lot of times these days. Especially in the early 90s and 2000s, you didn't have as many to choose from. We also get to learn a bit more about Michael and his family. And a secret agent shows up in town. Ooh. So a quick recap of the first episode. We've got our main characters, the aliens, which is Max and Isabel Evans. We've got their best friend, Michael Guerin. We've got the humans who know their secret, Liz Parker and her best friend, Maria and their best friend, Alex Whitman, who is totally clueless about their situation. Besides that, we've got Sheriff Valenti, who's on Max's trail to find the truth, and his son Kyle, who's sort of Liz's boyfriend. I don't know. We'll get into it. It's kind of a gray area. She seems to see it one way. He seems to see it another. But right now, she is kind of hooked on Max. At the end of last episode, I said one of his final lines was, See you in school. And all night, Liz is pondering, and she's wondering, what does he mean by that? Is that a casual thing, just to fill space? Or is that the kind of feeling where it's unable to breathe until you can see that person again? She's writing in her diary once again. We keep this up for a few episodes, but it does begin to fade out. My favorite part about this, though, I mean, even the editing of this show is so clever. The juxtaposition between these storylines, it happens a few times throughout the episode that I'd like to point out of here's Liz torn up about her feelings, unable to stop thinking about him and this connection that they shared, and then there's this hard cut to Max's bedroom where he's passed out in his bed, flopped over, and only wakes when there's a prowler right outside his bedroom. He immediately wakes up and grabs a baseball bat, but it turns out to be Michael. Max lets him in and unfurls a sleeping bag, putting it on the floor next to the bed, and you start to see that this might be a pattern. Maybe there's something wrong. Max asks after Hank, which is Michael's foster dad, but Michael just says, no, he couldn't sleep. And I don't know, when I tried to introduce one of my friends to this show, her opinions of Michael were very different from my own. She, no offense to the actor, because I love Brendan, but she did not think that he was a very good actor. She thinks he's very wooden and clueless, but I think that's kind of a choice. If Michael is a little clueless, he's off in his own head. He's not exactly stupid, but he's only concerned with what he's concerned about. And right now, that is getting information about this alien. He is obsessed with the fact that in 59 there was another alien. That means they were around when the spaceship crashed. They might have keys to the home world, where they're from, how to get back, or why they're there in the first place. We'll see more as the episode goes on why that's so important to Michael. Michael is so obsessed 
with finding this alien that he wants to break into Sheriff Valenti's office and steal the files. Max does not want this to happen. He says it's impossible. But Michael's not just going to let this die. And the next day, he starts casing the police station. Back at the crashdown, Maria is not taking this alien news very well. She is terrified and questioning Liz about what their motivation really is. These creatures could be three feet tall and slimy for all she knows. And who knows the true extent of their powers? I said in the last episode, it seemed like they could do a lot more than they're letting on. If you can change molecular structure, you can basically do anything to anything. I don't know. If I were her, I might be scared too. Jealous, definitely more jealous, but also terrified. And I think what's rubbing her the wrong way the most is that Liz is totally laid back. Maybe it's just because she's so infatuated with Max, but she really doesn't see them as a threat. And to be honest, Michael is not giving her the best vibes, and Isabel, I don't think she's actually really spoken to her yet at this point. There's been a lot of distance. This is one of my favorite scenes in the crashdown because it's where we come up with our brilliant code word for alien, which is Czechoslovakian. That's right, Czechoslovakian. It kind of fits. They're talking about people who are in the country, maybe not legally, and that's technically an alien. So while they're making their way through the crashdown, they continue to talk about these Czechoslovakian's real motivations. And Alex, of course, my favorite, the comedy core of this show, asks, who's Czechoslovakian? And Maria and Liz do a terrible job covering this up. They are awful at lying. Both of them speak at the same time, of course, saying contradictory things, but it comes out that it's the new kid at school who works in the hardware store. And when Alex asks, what about him? They say nothing. And his only line after that is, fantastic. And it's one word, but he says it with such dripping sarcasm and yet utter indifference. It's hilarious. Like, I understand you guys are totally blowing me off, and I kind of care, but I don't, and I'm just going to go back to my meal now. And this is what I love about Colin Hanks. He can say so much with one word. That's why his performance is so great on this show. And it is a great balance of there are some fantastic lines in the show, some witty, clever, or lines that pull on your heartstrings, but then there's delivery of these absolute plain lines that just crack me up every time. Fantastic. Like, it's nothing, but go and watch that scene again and tell me what you think of his performance. I guess it's appropriate at this time to talk about their uniforms. I mentioned in the first episode that Liz gets shot and she bundles up her bloody uniform into her bag and then Sheriff Valenti gets his hands on it. But I never actually described what this uniform looks like. And it's a mixture of adorable and tacky all at the same time. Maybe it's just because I find Sherry Appleby to be so adorable that I can't help but think she's adorable no matter what she's wearing. Like, I really feel like I should be commenting on some of their wardrobe. And Mahandra Delfino will get to her hair. I swear we will. We're not there yet, guys. We have to ease our way into this. I know. It's probably gnawing at you, but it's not time yet. It's uniform time. So it's kind of this just above the knee t-shirt, teal, turquoise dress that kind of has snaps up the front. It's got a silver collar 
around the neck, like a folded down collar, as well as silver cuffs around each arm. And then there's a patch on the front of a silver alien with black eyes, and they wear an apron over that that's kind of in that similar shape, a spaceship or an alien head with kind of pockets that are almost like eyes. And as if this wasn't enough, they all have to wear these sequined silver headbands that sparkle and have these bebop alien antennas that wiggle around on top of it. It's absolutely humiliating and yet completely adorable. Like, it's over-the-top ridiculous. I don't know if I'd hate working there, but it maybe it's just because they're cute teenage girls that it the dress looks cute on them. I don't know. Tell me what you think. I really am curious. Email me at thecrashdownpodcast at gmail.com and tell me what you think because I really want to discuss this more. Maybe you guys think it's terribly tacky and if you've ever worked a job that had a uniform, it can be easy because you don't have to think about what you're going to wear, but it can be humiliating because when you're off work, you still have to walk around in that outfit. I don't know. Let me know what you think. But not only are their outfits totally over the top, the diner itself is a total tourist trap destination. I don't know if I mentioned, but there is a giant alien ship that looks like it's crashed into the roof of the building. So every time there's an exterior shot, it's like a UFO, a big circular ship has smashed into the top of the building and that's why it's called the crash down. It's just way over the top, but I guess if you live in a city like that, where the main source of income for the town is tourism, there isn't necessarily a thriving local economy, you have to cater to that. And if you're going to cater to that, you have to be the biggest, the best, the brightest, the cheeriest, the tackiest, the wackiest. And that's kind of what the crashdown is. And later in the episode, Liz actually calls attention to that. When she and Max are having a moment, she says that she wished she could be invisible sometimes because her whole life she's been known as the daughter of the guy who owns the diner. So anytime she cut her hair or made a decision, everyone would comment on it. And she feels like it's a claustrophobic bubble. And I can understand her meaning. Like, it's hard. She has another beautiful line where she says, how can I become whatever I'm supposed to become when everybody is looking at me? And I think that resonates so strongly with why she keeps this diary and this sense of loneliness and outsider mentality even though everyone is surrounding her because they're judging her and they have opinions they're not supporting her it's putting that pressure on her and pigeonholing her into what they think she could be and I think that's why she's drawn to some of this mystery is it's so far beyond anything that she's familiar with that she's intrigued you can see just how attracted she is the next day at school. She has a line in her diary where she says, the thing about Czechoslovakians is that they have these really intense eyes, and she can't help staring at Max. But in class, in math class, all of a sudden, they get a substitute teacher, and in walks Darla. She'll always just be Darla to me. But in this show, she is Miss Topolsky, and she is their substitute math teacher. And she introduces herself and makes a joke about aliens and then proceeds to do roll call. When she gets down the list and gets to Michael, she finds that he's absent and then starts questioning Max if he knows where he is. 
Liz gets really paranoid and asks Max if that was strange after class, but he kind of blows her off, like, no, we just have to be normal, forget about it. The conversation ends when Isabel basically drags Max away from her down the hallway. You can clearly see she does not want her anywhere near her brother. Later, Liz meets up with Maria, and they talk about what they're going to do. Maria is totally paranoid about the teacher, too. She definitely feeds into Liz's paranoia that, yes, of course there's government agents and alien hunters and spies, and of course they would infiltrate your school and question the other students. Maria, though, really wants to bring Alex into the situation. She feels guilty about having to lie to him all the time. And Liz tells her she absolutely mustn't. And this brings up two things that I had to mention. And that's Liz's vocabulary. Mustn't is the first word. And the other word is behooves. It's just so funny because the other characters call her out on this. They totally mention that she's talking like a literary character. But I love it because that's kind of Liz. She's smart enough that she understands how these words would be applied in a sentence and quick enough that she could actually use them appropriately. Maria doesn't like being told what to do, but as they look across kind of the quad in the schoolyard, Alex is twisting his arms in a knot and then wrapping them around his head. He looks like a total pretzel fool. And of course, a bunch of people are laughing at him. And he may have a heart of gold, but He's not exactly Fort Knox, and he's not exactly suave, so maybe they should just hold off on mention anything for now. The rest of Liz's day doesn't go quite so smoothly, though. Kyle corners her in the hallway, and Liz is desperately hoping that whatever they had over the summer, he just considers a casual fling, but as he walks up into the hallway, as he walks up to her in the hallway and puts his arms around her and calls her his girl... It's very clear that he has different expectations. And here's another classic moment of why I love Kyle so much. He gets her alone, and Liz is so awkward. She's just standing there, and she doesn't know what to say. And he's this kind of big jock guy, and he's got his letterman's jacket on. And he tells her he wants them to be honest with each other. And tells her he's been talking to some of the other guys on the team, and he's... He really just thinks when a person makes an appointment, they should just, they should be on time. They should really be on time. It's just, it's polite. It's respectful. When a person says they should be there, they should be there. And it's so funny. I laugh so hard. The problems that this kid has right now are so small. The girl he liked over the summer showed up late at the, at the festival. He's just mad. That happened literally just a night or two before. And he's just... He's really been stewing over this and thinks he has to be honest, but I think it's great of him to confront his feelings head-on and to be so honest about what he needs from her and what his expectations for a relationship are. It's, it's adorable, you guys. I know he's kind of a buffoon and he's out of the loop. He's a bit of an antagonist. We just know there's going to be trouble coming from this, but oh, Kyle. Oh, Kyle. He's another source of entertainment for me on this show. Kyle. Michael and Alex, they are just comedy gold. The saddest part about this interaction, though, is Liz can't even bring herself to care. She doesn't apologize. She's just staring down the hallway because she sees Mrs. Topolsky. 
And so she basically just blows off Kyle and says, uh, I can't talk, and goes and bumps into the teacher. And when she does, a bunch of files get scattered on the ground. And when Liz is going to help her pick them up, she sees a file with Michael's name, a picture of him, it's all filled out, and Topolsky grabs it back really quick, but the damage has been done. Liz has seen it, and she goes back to Max to try and tell him what's going on. Max tries to downplay it. Well, there, how many files were there? Did she have files on every one? You know, you can't go assuming everything. She's a new teacher. Liz freaks out. She's so paranoid, and she has to act. Another reason why I love this show, and it's very 90s, early 2000s quality, is there are very obvious commercial breaks. And not like today, where they leave cliffhangers and, you know, it'll come back. It's like this slow, kind of weird, awkward fade, and when they come back, it's not as obvious. Like, today's storytelling is so smooth. The audience knows how to fill in the gaps, and this is hoping that the Three and a half minutes of commercials will make you forget exactly what just happened, and this is close enough, and we'll just move on from here. Because Liz is now at a trailer park. She has gone to see Michael. She is a little freaked out, and there's she hears some strange noises and arguing, but she knocks on the RV, and here's where we get our first viewing, our first real viewing anyway, of drunken, obnoxious stepdad Hank. He's a total creeper to Liz and really just screams for Michael and then sits back down in his chair to get drunk and watch the game. Michael takes her outside and Liz basically tells him everything. She tells him all about the records and her suspicions. Michael reacts in typical fashion, jumping to the worst case conclusion that this woman is after him. She's out to get him and he better act fast. He apologizes for Hank's behavior, even though he didn't actually do anything. And Liz apologizes for sh just showing up there, but Michael says it's where he lives. And that says everything about Michael. Like, it's this dirty, run-down place. He has to fend for himself. Uh, he's just from these very humble origins. And you really start to see why he's so desperate to find out about his past, because nothing can really be worse than what he's living in right now. At the very least, it's neglect. And I would say it's much more on the side of abuse, whether it's verbal, I mean, even just the insults that Hank gets him and the attitude with which he treats him. It's, oh, you feel for Michael. You just feel for him. Anyways, in the sheriff station, there's some action going on. When Sheriff Lenti gets into work that morning, he finds that there's a government agent sitting on a stool in the lobby. And he asks one of his deputies, Deputy Hansen, we meet him again and again. There's plenty of local recurring characters on this show. And he asks him what he's doing there and said, oh, just to go about your business. And so he did. Sheriff Lenti, of course, has to go and question the man and doesn't accept that there's a federal agent just sitting in, in his office listening into everything and the agent doesn't seem to want to identify himself doesn't really seem to want to leave but Sheriff Lenti stands his ground and gets kicked out and really starts getting suspicious even though he was told by Agent Stevens in the first episode that there was no blood on the uniform that it was merely ketchup the fact that a government agent was sitting in his office earlier 
starts raising his suspicions. This is what's so great about Sheriff Valenti. He's not a bumbling cop. He's a smart man. He's putting things together. He's being clever. He's trying to cover his tracks. He's out there trying to do the research. And having this guy in his office warns him something's up. So he goes through his files about this alien encounter in the 50s. And in the file, there's a small packet stapled to the side, which he rips open, and it's a key. To what? Who knows? But he takes it out and puts it in the lid of his thermos. Then he puts that in his desk. Michael, however, hasn't given up on his quest. He thinks the best way to avoid Topolsky is to avoid school, so he continues with his surveillance. And I've got to say, this is one of his best ruses ever. I mean, it's the best cover story ever. He's selling candy for charity. <laughs> Michael. Oh, foolish blockhead Michael. He's so cute. He's wearing a little button-up shirt, but a t-shirt. And he's carrying a big brown rumpled paper bag. And he just walks up to the police station and inside and he walks up to the deputy on duty and tries to sell him some candy. And really, he's fishing for information about who else is there. It seems there aren't very many people on duty at night, but he still tries to push past to see the back rooms. Of course, the deputy doesn't let him, and then sends him on his way. But, oh my goodness, these candy bars. On his way out, he bumps into another cop who questions him, and he just pulls out a big package from inside the bag and says, They're six dollars each! And I love how obsessed he is with the peanut clusters. He keeps recommending them. And then after this brilliant ruse, he goes back to Max and Isabel. He tells them they bought the story, but nobody bought any candy. And it's just, oh my goodness. It's so ridiculous. In all honesty, I think he did mostly pull it off, though. When he tries, he's actually very polite and respectful, and he was adorable in his little button-up shirt, and he was so bright and cheery that it was to raise money for the orphanage, and that's why they were six dollars, and can I recommend the peanut clusters, and you just want him to apply himself, but he's just not gonna do it. Oh my goodness. In this scene, though, we start to see Isabel's character. We haven't really seen much of her up till this point. She's only been in a few scenes. She's usually paranoid or siding with Max. But here you see her all dressed up in a leopard print top, ooh, ready to go out on a date, but like a full sleeve top. It's super not sexy, but apparently it's risque because even her mother comments on it. And this is everything about Isabel. Here they are. Maybe there's a government agent after them. Maybe Michael's going to break into a police station and she's worried about her date. And she has one next Friday too that she really wants to make. And you see that she's happy in this little life. She wants a normal life, but it's perfect for her. Like, she doesn't want anything more than this. She's popular. She's beautiful. Life is perfect. Michael keeps pressing to break into the sheriff's office. He has a plan. The locks are no problem for his powers. They can deactivate the alarm. He knows the sheriff won't be there after 7.30, but Max still says no. It's too dangerous. This is their first clue to the past, though, and Michael insists that they don't have a choice. They have to get this information. This is the first link to their world that they've ever had. There are agents after them. If there's any time to get this information, it's now. 
He doesn't have time to finish his arguments, though, because as soon as the Evans parents get home, he flees. I would like to point out, though, that the father that comes in is not the father that's in later episodes. I did not realize this. I don't know how I never noticed. I guess because he's only in the scene for a few seconds and is holding some food that I don't even really notice him. But I'm wondering how many episodes this gentleman is in. Again, if you know, I could Google it, but I probably won't. I'm that lazy. But if you know, email me at thecrashdownpodcast at gmail.com. And tell me if you eagle-eyed watchers have seen how many episodes this guy is in and what episode they change. Because the, ep- the parents aren't in every episode. They aren't in most episodes, in fact. So I'm really curious to watch out for that now. Back at school, the evidence against Topolsky just keeps adding up. In math class, Liz corrects her when she's attempting to calculate the number of degrees in all the angles of a triangle. Miss Topolsky says there's 360, but in actual fact, there are only 180 degrees. You'd think a math teacher would know something basic like that. Like, sure, Liz's character is very clever, but, I mean, even looking at it, you can see that it's not going to be a full circle. This is when Max starts taking her seriously. In the hallway, he sees Topolsky talking with Sheriff Valenti and sends Liz a note to meet him in the Eraser Room. The Eraser Room! Oh my goodness, our first introduction to the Eraser Room. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, the Eraser Room does two things. It cleans erasers, and it takes our innocence. Do you know what I mean when I say takes our innocence? Because Maria has to explain this to Liz in another brilliant, hilarious scene. Maria really nails it. Liz is this naive, innocent girl, and Maria's trying to snap her out of it. In the girl's bathroom, she's trying to get Liz to see that Max is totally into her, and when he says meet her there, it's not just to talk. It's not just to clean erasers. The eraser room has taken some of the best of us. And the best part is there's girls in the background who are like, "Uh uh-huh, she's right. (laughs) It's taken some of the best of them. Oh my goodness. So this gets Liz all nervous because she's already kind of obsessed with him. She's already kind of thinking about him all the time and wondering if he's thinking of her too. So when she gets there and he locks the door behind her so that they can have a private talk, you can see that she's just giving him these puppy dog eyes. She's definitely Myron. Max, though, has other plans. He knows that Liz is probably right. And it just so happens that if you move a panel in the eraser room, you get a perfect view of Topolsky's makeshift office. And they decide to sit there, because they know she has a free period, and wait to see if they can overhear her. Of course, this means waiting alone in a darkened room, and they get to talking. Liz still can't believe that he doesn't know anything about where he comes from, and this is where they have that great talk about how she wishes she could be invisible. But poor Max wishes that he didn't have to be. He can't stand out. He can't draw attention to himself. He has to be normal all the time, and not just normal, but even more boring than normal. Because a normal kid can make straight A's. A normal kid can be captain of the football team. But those kids get noticed. Those kids get looked at, and he just can't have it. 
Another funny conversation they have, though, is Liz trying to figure out his age. Because if his ship crashed all those years ago, how old is he? Is he an old man in a kid's body? Or does he age more slowly than humans? But apparently, he was in that pod for a while, and he came out in 89, and when he was in 89, he was six. Man, does that really date the show? Do that math, people. And for the sake of Maria, Liz just asked, when he comes out, was he green and slimy and three feet tall? But he always just looked like a person. He's just aged as a person. That's all he's ever known. But then he pulls a joke on her saying that, except for the third eye, he's totally normal. And she's just nervous enough to kind of laugh and not know whether he's serious. Their conversation is cut short, though, when Topolsky arrives back at her office and they overhear her singling Michael out. She says that if he won't come to school, she's going to go to his house. She has his address and she's going to track him down. Now, meanwhile, Michael has been keeping with his plans. He's been watching the sheriff's office. And who should come to visit but Agent Stevens? He's back. Even though he said nothing happened with the dress... Even though he said it wasn't blood and there was no case, he's come back to seize all of Sheriff Valenti's files. Of course, the sheriff is pretty upset, but he knows what's going on. There had to have been something there. Why else would they take this much action to seize everything he had? They wanted to just close the case, but he plays dumb. He agrees with them. He just gives them his, you know, keychain so they can open his files and then tells everyone he's going to lunch and sneaks out that thermos in a paper bag. Now, Michael has been watching him this whole time, and when Max and Liz come to find him, they tell him he's got to hide. Topolsky's on the lookout. Now, Liz was supposed to work after school, so she runs into the crash down to get Maria to cover for her. Max tries to calm Michael down and tells him, you've got to hide. Isabel's waiting for you, but Michael says there's people emptying the sheriff's offices now or never. If we don't go in now, we may never have a chance to find whoever this other alien is. They may never know the truth about who they really are. Max isn't willing to risk it, though. If there really are agents after him, now is not the time to be drawing extra attention to themselves. He heads back to the car because they're going to try and cut Topolsky off. But before she can make it out, Alex cuts her off. He's had it up to his neck with their lies and evasions and talking about Czechoslovakians, even though at that time it hadn't been a country for 10 years. Think about that. In 1999, it hadn't been a country for 10 years. So I just picture this in modern day and them still using the word Czechoslovakians and everyone being like, it's been almost 30 years. Maria, being the true pal that she is, though, covers and says that it's cramps. It was codes for cramps, and they wanted to save Alex that embarrassment. But if if he really wants to be a part of it, they can explain in excruciating detail. And of course he freaks out. No, he's a guy. He doesn't need to hear about that. He's eating. Oh, God. And thus, Liz is able to escape. She and Max hop in his Jeep and head off to the trailer park. Kyle, though, oversees them, get into the Jeep, and gets all jealous and has to follow. When they get there, all he sees is the two of them cuddling up in a jeep. Meanwhile, what they're really talking about is poor Michael and how awful his foster dad is. When Topolsky shows up, Liz ducks her head down and in the process drops her ring and has to fish around on the ground to get it. Kyle, though, 
thinks that she's giving him a blowjob, basically. I mean, it looks like they're snuggling up in the car at night in the middle of nowhere, and then all of a sudden her head goes down to his lap. Of course, he flips, jumps out of the car, runs over to the Jeep. It's like, Liz, what are you doing? And of course, they're both fully clothed. Nothing is happening. She's like, I dropped my ring. And then he's like, why are you whispering? And they're like, we're not whispering. He's like, what are you doing here? Uh, we're picking up Michael, but why are you whispering? We're not whispering. We're going bowling. Like, it's just this awkward exchange because they're trying to make sure Topolsky doesn't see them. But of course, they're making such a fuss that she sees Liz there. Kyle and Max duck, but she clearly sees Liz standing there awkwardly. Again, you get another commercial break because nothing in that scene wraps up. It jumps to... Max and Liz walking down Main Street again in front of the crash down, and they're kind of having a romantic wrap-up, and Max asks her to go have lunch sometime, and Liz is like, like in the calf? Yeah. And then she's like, great, it's a date. No, it's not a date. It's lunch. And it's the most casual not date at all. Like, it's literally the least effort you can do. You're probably already eating on campus anyway. You're probably already sitting with that person anyway. So, what, you're just making it official? Let's sit together and chew our food in the cafeteria? Look, I'm an alien, but I still eat food. We can bond. I don't know. This scene is another scene where I love that it kind of flips, flips dynamics. As this romantic scene is wrapping up, Isabel appears in the background, waving her hands and gesturing at Max to get over here. So he sweetly says goodbye to Liz and then rushes off. Michael never showed up at her house. He's probably up to no good and they'd better go and bail him out at the police station before he literally needs bail money. When they're talking, you get a bit more of his background that apparently he can't control his powers as well as they can. So that's why it's extra dangerous for him to go on his own. They come up with a plan where Isabel will distract the sheriff who's just getting back to the office and Max will go and bail out Michael. At this point, Michael's been able to break into a barred second floor window. He's been able to like unmeld the metal <laughs> of the bars and break in, but all of the file cabinets are empty. The government has done their job and there's absolutely nothing left. It looks heartbreaking until he gets into Valenti's desk and he sees the package that Valenti was carrying earlier. And when he opens the thermos, he sees the key. And when he takes it out, he gets a flash. And it's of this colored, weird, geometric shapes and flashes and mirrored images that almost look like Rorschach pictures. And they've kind of been distorted and warped and flipped and it's so intense that it actually knocks him over. Isabel is doing her best. She's faked a flat, well, not faked, not faked at all. She has made a flat tire in her car and asks the sheriff and deputy to help her fix it. They're drawn to the noise, but at that point, Max is caught up to Michael. He pulls him out the window, remelds the bars, and at the last second, they have to jump out the window into a dumpster, and the sheriff doesn't find them. But what I find really odd is that Michael fell over. He was, like, crouched in front of the desk, and then he gets his flash, and he falls over, and they hear that. But he wouldn't hear two grown boys falling from a second floor into a dumpster. Do you know how loud it is when you throw a single sack of garbage into a dumpster? Like, even if you throw, like, one little bag, the whole metal rattles and all the other stuff in there shifts, and 
I mean, who's to say there wasn't bottles and stuff back there? Like, they could have been seriously hurt. I mean, I guess Max could have healed them. And I guess the sheriff can't open the window because it's barred, but wouldn't you be like, man, that was loud. I'm a sheriff. I should go investigate. Maybe we didn't hear it from up here. Maybe we heard it from outside the whole time. But nope, they just go outside and they fix Isabel's tire and... He asks her about his brother, and she plays it off like, oh, I'm his sister, not his keeper. So I guess, again, they get away with it. And sometimes their getaways are clever, and then other times you're like, no, I guess sometimes he is the incompetent sheriff. I mean, he was clever and he outwitted the agency, but he wasn't clever enough to outwit the aliens. Left with nothing more than this single key, Max and Isabel don't take it very seriously. She actually mocks him, saying when she touches the key, she sees Ricky Martin naked. Again. 90s? Much? I mean, like, sure, I'm sure Ricky Martin is still pretty fit, but that, like, a straight teen girl would be like, yeah, Ricky Martin, ow, ow! Michael, however, is taking it very seriously and rips it away from her and actually stalks off. This killer is more his family than anything he has on this planet, and... Max is finally starting to get that. I think it takes Liz pointing out Michael's situation for him to actually realize what's at stake for his friend. He had a cushy life. He had parents that loved him and supported him and a sister who was always there for him. And Michael got shuffled around. He got ignored. He got used for a check. I mean, he acts like it's no big deal. He acts cocky. He even says to Max that this is better it's easier for him that his life sucks because he's able to walk away at any point. Getting in deep means you get weak. And I, I love the lines in this show. I love the personalities. Some are so stoic and some are so passionate and some are so impulsive and some are so guarded. And I mean, when you're in a situation like that, of course you have to be. You're not going to open yourself up to this drunken idiot who's going to throw it in your face the first chance he gets. And Max starts to feel for him. So at least he has those friends. At least he has them starting to reach out and there for him. But you definitely see a division already. It's the pair of siblings and then there's Michael. Sure, there's a trio, but there's already this hierarchy, this group, this clique behavior forming. Oh, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm going to love talking about how this progresses and who settles into their personalities and who rises above them and oh it's amazing now the very last scene in this episode other than the diary entry i'm sorry i don't even count those as opening and closing scenes you know me guys that's that's a whole nother thing those are like tags those are like closing narration but the last real scene is topolsky cornering liz at school after seeing her there at michael's she tells her that Michael is in serious trouble and that she hasn't been honest. She's not a new teacher at this school. She is, in fact, the new guidance counselor. And Michael has not been doing well. He needs serious help. And she wants Liz to tell him to come and see her. She wants to help him. But my whole thing with this is, what bullshit? What a terrible, terrible way to get the kids to trust you. It's like, hey, you're going to meet me and I'm going to lie to you. And then I want you to open up about your feelings to me. I mean, what the hell are you doing, lady? That's madness. 
And I mean, I guess she could be like, oh, I, yeah, I was substituting. I substitute and I'm a guidance counselor. Or be like, hi, I'm the new guidance counselor, but I'm also a substitute or something. But, like, did you think you were going to trick these kids into it? Do you think they would open up to a substitute rather than the guidance counselor? I cannot believe this. And in future episodes, when these kids are talking to her, like, I understand why no one wants to open up. Because, screw you, lady. You're a freaking liar. That's what teens already think about adults, that they don't want to tell you the truth. They don't want what's best for you. They're just going to use you and manipulate you to do whatever they want ridiculous. I mean, I don't know what else there is to say other than to talk about her closing monologue, which I know I said I didn't count, but it's got some interesting themes. It's all about secrets again and talking about how it does so many different things. She has such a strained relationship with Kyle now because there's this whole wall she has to build and and with Alex too. She can't let them in anymore and the fact that anytime one person has a secret, there's another person out there who wants to know it. People can just sense when you're holding back. And that gnawing sensation that there's more, uh, who can resist that curiosity? You just want to know. And you're going to do whatever it takes to know. And I think that kind of leads into the second point where she says secrets push people apart. When you're withholding it really strains things. Or sometimes when you tell the truth and it's not something you want to hear, it pushes you apart. You just can't live either way with the situation and the knowledge that you have. And on the polar opposite side, it brings you together. Being in on someone's secret creates this automatic bond that you have and the rest of the world doesn't. And there are those who use secrecy to bond. Let's say a husband's having an affair with a woman in his work and he's much happier at home because he has someone that validates him outside of that marriage I mean he's doing an awful thing and he's keeping a secret but back at home his wife is happy because when he comes home from his business trips he's nice to her and he's attentive he's attentive to the kids so it's just very interesting that on both sides it pushes and pulls people apart depending on who is keeping a secret and what that secret is and that's definitely going to be another theme this secrets and this isolation and this trust and this family and friendship and purpose and history and oh it touches on so many things and we're just getting into it but this is really setting the stage it's setting the tone it is pretty isolated in the first season you do start getting much more ongoing storylines in the second and third season but I think for building the world for developing these characters or getting a taste of their life and seeing the way they interact with each other really develops those personalities as well now if there's anything I've missed or forgot to talk about or got completely wrong again message me the crashdown podcast at gmail.com you can subscribe on iTunes please rate and review me I mean, I, I, I kind of don't want to hear that I suck, but if it's honest and there's constructive feedback on what I can do to make these better, am I talking too much? Am I going too much into the plot? Do you guys just want me to ge- talk about general topics or give like a two-minute summary and then talk about my likes and dislikes? I don't know. There's so many great moments that I want to delve into. Maybe I shouldn't be quite so literal, but I would love to hear your feedback. You're the ones that are listening to this. I'm making it for you as much as I'm making it for myself. It's kind of hard since I'm just one voice here. I don't have any other opinions to bounce off me, but if you guys write me some letters, maybe I'll read them on the air, or if you don't want me to read it, I'll kind of take your questions and then just post them to myself. 
I'm very good at talking to myself. I can pose a question and come up with multiple answers. So if you want to hear some more of my thoughts or you want to share some of yours, message me. But please, rate, subscribe. I love you all. And, and <laughs> was that too personal, guys? Was that too close? Was that too soon? I like you a lot, guys. We'll wait till episode five or six to say the I love you. <laughs> Anyways, that's it, I think, for today. I'll leave you with the very last line of the show. Even I, Liz Parker, have something to hide. Until next week, have a good one. <laughs>